in a message a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the disciples moving from being disillusioned to being determined, that the cross moving from being a place that they ran from to being um, a, 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 a symbol for them because of what actually happened, becoming a symbol of them for power and, uh, and, and, and picking up and running with. Um, I want to talk about why they were disillusioned a little bit today and um, for our devotional thought, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that you, in your word, um, used imperfect people, people who struggled just like we do, who struggled to understand, who struggled to believe and yet not believe. I thank you that you use imperfect people such as we, um, and you call us your children. So I pray that you would, again, use the example of the disciples, the power of your word and your Holy Spirit to encourage us and, and to draw us closer to you, as well as to help us help others that we are walking with. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Um, so uh, we talk about why they were discouraged um, at the cross. So often when people are disillusioned, it's because um, of expectations being unrealistic. Um, th this is certainly the case with the disciples. They were discouraged by the cross, and it wasn't Jesus' fault, but they had an image of what it meant to follow Jesus that wasn't what Jesus had communicated to them. In fact, several times, Jesus made it very clear that to follow him meant to face difficulty. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he tells them, it says, from then on, Jesus began from this point, tell the disciples it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and to be raised on the third day. But Peter took him aside and said, oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. See, Peter had this preconceived idea because of what he had been taught by misleading teachers, um, religious teachers growing up, that the Messiah would come and he would take over and establish a, 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 a reestablish Israel, like reigning on David's throne in a way that was a very literal way. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to go and die, Peter's like, oh, no, no, Lord, you don't understand who you are as well as I do. Um, the language we use today is my Jesus. Well, my Jesus would never. Well, that's not my Jesus. It's like, well, it doesn't matter what my Jesus is or your Jesus. What really matters is who's the real Jesus? Not long after this, in Luke chapter 9, verse 44, Jesus says to the disciples, let this sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. So how do you think the disciples are going to respond? They ought to respond by saying, okay, how do we prepare? If you're going to be betrayed in the hands of men, Lord, what does it mean for us to follow you? Prepare us to suffer with you. But no, they completely miss Jesus' message because they don't want, because they have this, they have this strong uh, predetermined assumption of what it meant for him to be the Messiah and so what do they have, what do they talk about? They talk about who gets to be first in Jesus' kingdom. Who's going to have the chief seats when Jesus sets up the kingdom of Israel? 
again, missing the point. What do you expect of Jesus? Um, This is the danger that we all can live in, certainly. But I think one of the classics, one of the typical today is that often people think that Jesus is, is kind of a modern day version of Mr. Rogers. That, me, that Jesus would never say anything harsh, that Jesus would never be unlikable, that Jesus would never be come across as intolerant, because after all, he was so loving to those who were, uh, who were uh, you know, prostitutes and the, the, the rejected people and the tax collectors. And they think the issue is, oh, Jesus was really safe for the sinful. No, Jesus was safe for the repentant. Jesus was safe for the humble. He wasn't safe for the proud tax collector any more than he was for the proud Pharisee. He wasn't safe for the proud committer of adultery than he was for the proud teacher of Old Testament scripture. It was not a matter of Jesus being safe for the sinful because they were sinful is because Jesus was safe for the humble and the teachable. But a distorted view of Jesus leads us to disillusionment. That's why we tell people before they're baptized, sometimes I do, I was like, hey, whenever you take spiritual territory, whenever you become a danger to Satan, you must anticipate spiritual battle. You must anticipate that you are going to be attacked and discouraged in some ways. And we've seen it happen over and over again when people give their life to Christ and all of a sudden um, bad things start to happen, you know, in their family or with their jobs or something. Or or somebody, I remember several years ago, somebody said, yeah, we just committed to tithe. And that week we were hit with un expected bills, and I wasn't sure how we were going to have enough money for, for uh, milk for the kids. It's like as any time somebody dares to take spiritual territory of, because God has led them to in faith, always expect it's not going to be easy. There's going to be attack. But if you expect that it's going to be easy, if you expect that all of a sudden the road ahead is going to be paved with gold, then you're going to be disappointed. So if you see Jesus as a, as kind of your personal Warren Buffett, who, you know, you trust Jesus with your finances and you're going to prosper. Look at the cross. Jesus lived and he died pennilessly. If you expect Jesus to be your personal family counselor, and as a result of giving your life to Jesus, all of your family problems are going to go away and be solved and your kids are going to be, look to the cross. Um, where's Joseph? Where's Jesus' dad at the cross? Don't hear anything about Joseph from the time Jesus is an adult. Apparently he's passed away. Jesus' family at that point is broken. If you see Jesus as your personal physician who will guarantee you a long, healthy life, look at the cross. Jesus is 33 years old when he dies. Sometimes I hear athletes when they, uh, you know, throw the, uh, the winning touchdown pass, you know, give glory to God. I, I knew that God was going to give us the victory for this. Now, I'm thankful that they're giving glory to God, but there's a part of me that's a little bit concerned that 
they start to think just because they were praying and just because they're obedient to God that um, that somehow he's always going to allow them to win, to throw the game-winning catch. I'm concerned about them the next time they're playing and they're about to throw the game-winning pass and there's a Christian linebacker on the defense who's praying for a God-given sack, you know, and the, he takes down the, the, the quarterback and all of a sudden God answers that prayer and not the quarterback's prayer. Um, people sometimes get disillusioned because they have wrong expectations of God. Jesus does lead us as our good shepherd. He does lead us down right paths. He is our great physician and our benefactor and our counselor and our healer. But he's always those things on his terms, not on ours. Always on long-term upper story victory, not necessarily lower story ease. We talk about upper story and lower story around here at New Life. The lower story is the story of history that unfolds as naturally as we, you know, kind of as obviously. And then upper story is God's always at work with a scheme of redemption, with a plan to accomplish the ultimate victory for him and for his people. I've shared with you before that that um, language, actually, I'm indebted to my Old Testament professor from college, Dr. Hooks. It was Dr. Hooks who I remember in some of our Old Testament classes saying, the wonderful thing about reading the Old Testament is it gives us this wisdom that we see that life is unfolding on two levels. In the Old Testament, we can see how life is just unfolding for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the people of Israel and Moses. But we also see uh, at the top, the, the, what they couldn't see. We see how, how God's writing a story. God is at work doing good. We can get the benefit that we see how he's doing good and up to good, even though they couldn't see it at the time. So thankful for Dr. Hooks. One of the reasons that I love the Old Testament and to understand that and read the Old Testament is because of Dr. Hooks. I just heard last week, though, that Dr. Hooks, although he is in his 70s, has experienced some kind of debilitating failing that has left him in a wheelchair. That while he can still read and communicate, his condition has left him unable to teach. Um, and here's the question. Do you think Dr. Hook's faith is shaken? Do you think Dr. Hooks is thinking, oh my, I, you know, it's really hard for me to believe in God because, because this is going to shorten my life and because this has made my life so much more painful and I can't function as I had hoped to at this age? No, because Dr. Hooks' faith was not in a God who would do things his way in the lower story a God who would make all things easy in the lower story, but a God who is always at work for the good in the upper. Reminds me of the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar erects this great idol and says to everybody, bow down to it. Whenever the music plays, you must bow down to it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are followers of God, refuse. And the king says, unless you bow down to that idol, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. 
And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give those, that classic response. It says, we will not worship your false idol. Our God is able, they said, to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if he does not, still, we will not bow. That's the faith that sustains. That is the kind of faith that doesn't get disillusioned. The kind of faith that says, our God is able. We know the upper story. We know that he will win. Our God is able to step into the lower story and save us miraculously from this. But even if we don't, we will still trust him because we know ultimately he is good and he is wise and he has our best interest in mind. Like the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. So today I would just say, what do you expect of Jesus? Do you expect of Jesus a suffering servant? Or do you expect of Jesus a conquering king who will always give you victory? Do you expect Jesus to be a suffering servant who walks alongside you in the lower story in this fallen world where life is unfair, where bad things happen, and we can't control them? And he is able to step in miraculously, and sometimes he does, and we are so thankful for that. But ultimately, we know that he will be the victorious Savior. So let's be realistic about the calling of the cross. It's an ultimate calling to resurrection, but it's first a calling to endure a cross and not be disillusioned. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us perseverance. We thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you for the example of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I thank you for examples of people like Dr. Hooks. And Lord, when we go through those valleys of the shadow of death, um, whether we live or die, uh, may we live for you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So who do you know who needs to know Jesus as he is? Not their version of Jesus. Not a Jesus that is always the conquering hero, but the Jesus who goes to a cross and calls us to walk with him, knowing that ultimately the victory will be won. Share, how will you share with them this week? How will you have given them an invitation to to pray with them or to invite them to church. Pray that you will do so.